1973, a group of indigenous artists formed a collective. The press called them the Indian Group of Seven. Their goal? To raise the profile of indigenous art. It was all or nothing. We're representing all our people. And create a permanent space in galleries for indigenous artists in Canada and around the world. That was really a rock star moment for me. I'm Soleil Lunier, and this is Among Equals, the history and legacy of the professional native Indian artists, Inc. Listen wherever podcasts are heard. Art Slice is a different dive into art history. We goof around, we curse, you learn from it, but don't expect a typical lecture. You're welcome. Russell. Stephanie. When you walk through a museum, what happens? Well, you see some interesting things. You see some not so interesting things. If you're like me, you're probably a little bored. You're probably a little bit sleepy. And you are very aware of how often your knees are popping, like in every room. It's a real total body experience. And then you smell something, something really good. That seems pretty unusual for a gap. Oh, are we close to the cafe? That actually does smell really good. What? Where? Where is that coming from? Hello, and welcome to the debut episode of Art Slice, a palatable serving of art history. I'm Stephanie Duenas. And I'm your co-host. Ru- Are we not doing co-hosts? No. Oh, I didn't get the memo. Um, I'm Russell Shoemaker. Today we will be discussing a painting called Dominant Curve by Vasily Kandinsky from 1936. But first, since this is the debut episode of Art Size Podcast, we would like to introduce ourselves in a little bit more detail and give you the mission of our podcast. A little bit about me. I'm an artist. I have a dual Bachelor of Fine Arts in art history and painting. I Basically, I know how to paint and I can tell you art stories. I've worked in a few museums, both in the States and abroad. And uh, I, uh, I've had a 50-year career as a structural engineer. Um, I lost my eyes in a boating accident, and so right now I've, they've been replaced by dog eyes. Uh, you know, a, a, a brave dog donated their eyes to me, which has made uh, learning about art very challenging. I'm not here for this fake narrative, that's for sure. Oh, you didn't like the direction I was going? No. I am also an artist. I've worked in galleries. I've worked at art colleges. I've taught all levels of students, all ages of students. Uh, even the very young and the very old. And I helped open... What about the restless? I don't get it. And I even helped open an art school in China. Just full disclosure, just in case... Why are you laughing? I don't know. We are, uh, we, we are wed. Ew! We're wed. I do not like <laughs> the sound of that. We are married... We are husband and wife. We have our baguettes have bumped, as they say in Paris. 
So why are we doing a show about art history, you might be asking yourself? That's a good question to be asking. Well, no one's really done a show in the way that we would want to cover art history. So Steph and I both love making art. We like to talk about art. We like to argue about art. But we really don't like the exclusivity pretentiousness and privilege that often surrounds the artosphere. That's right. We believe that art is meant to be enjoyed by everyone, but it's not always accessible. Uh, Museum fees can be steep. You can't make it to the gallery, that artist talk or museum lecture. And then you find the time and you get there and then you can't understand anything anyone is saying because they are art speaking. Here, the artist Elver imaginatively suspends the voyeur's transversal vignettes whilst propelling an infinite perspective, simultaneously engendering the practicum of hierarchical dichotomies. (laughs) Yes, exactly not like that. Our goal of this podcast is to remove those obstacles for you. And to uh, cut back on the art speaking, at least like, you know, 10 or 20%. It's hard work to make good art. Uh, So you'll often hear us refer to artwork or an art piece simply as the work, because that is what it is. You're clocking in and you are spending hours on your art, whatever that art is. Artists will often get together and discuss each other's work, which is called a studio critique. They critique each other's artwork and share what they're doing well and what they think they might need to improve on. So, Steph, if I came to you in your studio mm, what and you I do? said, Steph, I don't like all these sparkly materials you're using. Well, I would ask you to get out of my studio. No, I'm just kidding. I would say, well, why, Russell? Why do you not like all the sparkly So that feedback can be encouraging, but it can also be tough. It's tough love. The goal is to be constructive. You're not just tearing someone down. You actually want them to learn something from your feedback. Studio critiques are a great time where artists get to be really nerdy about their craft with fellow artists. So we thought, why couldn't we go into Picasso's studio and give them a critique? Or Frida Kahlo's studio and give her a critique? We know that everyone's taste in art is sometimes very relative to what their personal tastes are. It's just like music. Sometimes your tastes are just what your tastes are. We believe if you like a piece, that's good. If you hate a piece, that's maybe even better. If you're bored by a piece and you've given it a chance, you've actually given it an honest chance, that might mean that that work is just it doesn't have anything going for it we want you to be able to distinguish why and what it is that you do or do not like art is it's really when you get down to it art is a language and we're going to try to let you into how artists are speaking we've decided instead of discussing an artist's entire body of work that we would focus on just one artwork at a time because like we all do artists change they evolve And uh, almost 100% of the time, artists die, tragically, of syphilis. So that might mean that we really don't like that one Frida Kahlo piece, but we like some of her other works, and that's okay. Some people feel like they can't dislike a historical piece of art simply because it's spelled with a capital H, right? But you totally can. But simply dismissing a work and saying your kid or your dog could paint that 
is not a good reason. Or elephant. Elephants paint too. They do? Yep. We want you to be able to explain why you hate that Picasso painting, but also understand why your toddler could not, in fact, have done that. My toddler could. In the same respect, we might cover an artist who was a total piece of shit in their lifetime. And we're not going to pull any punches if the evidence backs that up. But we might still happen to like a work that they've made here or there. That doesn't mean that their behavior doesn't cast an enormous shadow on their body of work. Art was meant to stand on its own, separate from the praise or controversy that it may have sparked in its day. But artists are human. They can be good. They can be bad. It's complicated, but we will try to be fair and solely judge the work. As best we can, we will shake off the dust, the baggage, the history, the celebrity, the syphilis, and drag the piece (laughs) back to the critique room. No art is safe from the critique room. That was my wrestler voice. You like that? I mean, okay, it's fine. We know that most art found in your standard museum and art history books is Western, cis male, and blindingly white. We will cover those big name artists you've heard of, as well as those who were overlooked in their time due to their race, gender, sexual identity. Not only that, listeners, but we will invite you to participate in an art assignment with every episode. We're also going to talk about the mystery behind the materials. We will answer that burning, itching, syphilis-ridden question you might have. What the fuck is impasto? Does it have to do with pasta? Uh, your facility. What and what color <laughs> it and what type of green is Viridian green? And breaking down art movements. Like who were the members of the bad boys of post-impressionism? So we will do our best to explain those in normal human language by adding them to something we will call the art slice pantry. I actually think I, I think I have my first entry in the art slice pantry. What is that? It's a tube. It's a a pl- tube? Yeah. Of what? Of a uh, of polenta or something. Oh my gosh, I love polenta. Actually, I'm looking at it again as a tube of oil paint. Oh, perfect. We'll cut that up. We'll make oil paint cakes instead of polenta cakes. Um, no, that sounds dangerous. <laughs> and you'll find out why, listeners, as that is our first entry. Take it away. Today's entry is oil paint. Oil paint is just what it says it is. It is a paint that is made with oil and some wax. Actually, there's some wax in there, too. There's some wax action? Yeah, I guess oily, waxy paint wasn't as marketable as oil paint. That checks out. Yeah. It's quite a mouthful. So there are plenty of types of paint, and they all have one thing in common. Stephanie, do you know what that one thing is? Pigment. That's right. When you look at paint, you are looking at pigment. We will cover pigment in another entry, but just to quickly explain, pigment is a powdery, colorful substance. It's found all over the world. It might be in zinc. It might be in charcoal or plants or laboratories. Bugs? Like carmine? Yeah, bugs too. Carmine. Oil paint, however, is unique from most types of paint. So I'm sure most of you have baked before. And when you've baked, you've maybe baked with oil or a similar fat. So you likely know that oil can be very good for holding things together, especially dry things. So you can imagine what would happen if you, if you mixed dry pigments with, uh, with an oil binder. So in oil paint, you're not really going for that cake batter type of texture, nor are you going for a very like runny salad dressing texture. You're going for somewhere in between those two things. And if you can imagine how easily that would spread on the canvas, you might understand why this is one of the most popular art mediums of all time. Like butter on toast? Like butter on toast. Mm. 
Chemically speaking, the oils that are used in oil paint dry when they're oxidized. Oxidized is just the chemical reaction of being exposed to oxygen. But the speed in which oil paint oxidizes is one of the reasons why it's, it's so popular. It doesn't oxidize or dry very quickly at all, actually. So if you've ever painted with watercolor or you've painted your apartment walls, you know that paint dries pretty quickly. Oil paint, on the other hand, doesn't even start to dry for at least a day, if not several days. What this does is allow artists to do a lot of different things. They can work on a painting for a really long period of time, uh, meaning that they can blend colors together. If they mess up, they can just take a rag and some paint cleaner and just wipe away anything that didn't work out and just try that part again. Oil actually is also able to handle more pigment, which makes the colors more powerful than your typical paint. Um, artists would call that saturation, so you would say that is saturated with color. Because oil paint is at the mercy of the pigments that are being used, expensive, quality brands of oil paint can have varying degrees of saturation and transparency. That's just because some pigments are naturally more transparent, Less expensive oil paint will have less pigment in it and more wax in it. And that does two things. It makes the texture of the paint more consistent, but it also limits the saturation of the pigment. So your colors might be more uniform, like they all sort of might have like a buttery texture, but you've lost a lot of your color. Artists also add binders or solvents to the oil paint, and that could actually make their oil paint more like the texture of a cake batter or like a salad dressing, just really runny. You can also speed up the drying time so you're not waiting for weeks for a painting to dry. Um, there's just a lot you can do with oil paint. It's very versatile. So I know I've been comparing uh, oil paint to food a lot, uh, but don't ever eat oil paint, let alone any paint. It will kill you. You should also be careful to wear gloves when painting as some pigments have a small amount of toxic materials in it. There's also a very slight risk of fire and vapor inhalation. The oil paint itself isn't gonna spontaneously combust, but the things that you use with oil paint might. Just be sure to keep, you know, anything that's like a paint cleaner or turpentine or an oily rag in a, in a container that is not exposed to heat, cigarettes, um, Bad judgment. Any of that stuff. For vapor inhalation, you know, you just need some precautionary measures. Once again, it's not a, it sounds scary, but it's not a big deal. Even if an additive or a cleaner is odorless, just be careful. Don't paint in a small closet with no windows. You know, try to paint in a larger room if possible so there's some airflow going. If you do have a smaller room, just open a window. Russell, thank you so much for that compelling debut entry into our Art Slice Pantry. Well, the Art Slice Pantry was, was looking a little bare. Not some anymore. Dust, some dust bunnies in there. Not anymore. It's all gone. Well, there's, gonna, one, there's, I mean, there's one thing in there now. We're going to fill it up with so much knowledge. I'm so excited. Yeah. Yeah. I have to be honest with you. Your entry did take me back. Took you okay. took me back to uh, Florence, Italy. Okay. Yeah. Firenze. Is that how you say it? Firenze. Yeah, we saw an amazing oil painting there. We saw several, but there was one in particular that we were just like all about that one night. Do you remember? Is it the painting we're talking about? Yes. Oh, that's yes. Con that's so convenient. Oh, how convenient, right? Man. Okay. Let's remind everybody we are talking about Vasily Kandinsky's A Dominant Curve, a painting from 1936. You know, I remember seeing it, but my memory from that night is a, it's a little bit hazy. Will you, will you jog my memory? Yes. Yeah, I remember parts tell it, of it. Tell it to me like it, like you're telling me, like you've sat me down, you've opened up a book. You've lit a fire. You're smoking on a uh, little pipe. Smoking robe 
on. Yeah. And my smoking slippers. You're smoking slippers on. You have to have the whole ensemble or it just doesn't work. Once upon a night, many years ago, pre-Trump. Pre-Trump. It was pre-Trump. It was, well, Trump Earlier was... in the year. No, it was earlier in the year. Trump was, he was running. He was around. But no one, no, 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 everyone thought it was a joke. The disaster that would befall America, deservedly. No, no, not deservedly. Well, I don't know. Trump, Trump is of our own making. Anyway, we don't have to get political. I'm trying to remind listeners that at one point, it was less embarrassing to be an American. <laughs> well. Less embarrassing. Well, less embarrassing. Less. But less. I got you. Less. God. Many years ago, seems like a lifetime ago. We were in Florence and you flew out to see me in Italy. I was interning. I took a Turkish Airlines flight. Fuck Turkish Airlines. They got a tall population, supposedly. Their seats could not fit anyone. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it sounds like I would have been uncomfortable. Um, they give you slippers and you think, well, actually, they give you a gift box. And within that gift box is like one of those things you put over your eyes, an eye mask, I guess is what what the kids are calling it. Some little treats, some little Turkish delights, and uh, <laughs> slippers for you to put on your feet to relax somewhere where you have ceased to feel your feet because it's so cramped. I'm 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 tall, but I have a long torso. I don't have long legs. So I have like an average man's legs, I would say, <laughs> and a long torso. But I would try to I try to put on the slippers. <laughs> to make the the most uncomfortable ride and i had to take three planes to see you i tried to put on the slippers my body ceased up seized seized what i say ceased, ceased. like my body seized, seized up to something oh my god you poor thing but I remember, then we're in florence yeah that's true we're in florence now i may or may not have been thinking you were kind of being a baby about it this night we went to have pizza at the best pizza ever gusta pizza Florence is a really walkable city, so we walked after stuffing our faces with pizza. We walked across the river over the Ponte Vecchio and then to the um, Palazzo Strozzi where the show was. I'm jet lagged. Mm -hmm. I'm carb drunk. (laughs) Yeah. I'm espresso drunk. It's a lot. I'm alcohol drunk. In that moment, it was like this weird equilibrium. Everything Mm, was hazy. Out seeing fuzzy lights and pictures and yeah so we make our way to the show called from kandinsky to pollock this painting we're going to be talking about today was certainly the star of the show i feel like it made an impression on you though despite all the hazy and fuzziness we had quite the argument over a hans hoffman piece you didn't like it right kind of the premise of this show now that i think about it we'll have to cover that piece i'm good so tell me your impressions of a dominant curve i'm not really like a fan of Kandinsky or at least I didn't think I was and I think I walked into it and I was surprised that it was Kandinsky it almost felt more contemporary interesting in a way okay what was great about it was the Kandinsky composition was there but the shapes they started to take shape other than just the flat geometric shape Mm -hmm. they became semi-representational interesting there was more dimension to There's them. Dimension, there was more shading yeah. and all that. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I was not expecting him to be the artist when I first saw that work. Like I first saw an image of it. And before I even read like, you know, the name attached to it, I was like, oh, that's Kandinsky. Because when I think of Kandinsky, I think of uh, a lot of primary colors and like large swaths of them. Much more abstract, less representational. Like if I looked at it, I would be like, oh, that's a blank. 
So I was, uh, I was, you know, I was very taken aback by it. I was very impressed. Good. Um, actually, it's funny that you say that word, impressed. Kadinsky had a similar experience with the painting. He went to an impressionist show in Moscow, this 1896. So he's 30 years old at this point. He has a successful law career going on and he attends this uh, French impressionist show and he is impressed by a painting by Claude Monet of Haystack. Haystacks. Famous, famous impressionist works are just like haystacks in a field, morning, middle of the day, evening, just gorgeous. But They're I mean, if I, they are beautiful, right? I'm just saying a haystack, you're probably just thinking of like literally what it probably is, but it's so much more interesting if you see it. Kandinsky was so stirred by the color and composition of the of the painting, the haystack painting, uh, he realized that was far more important than the depiction of the physical landscape. His reaction, his emotional reaction to the color, the composition, to him felt like it was more important than the fact that it was a haystack. Here's a quote from Kandinsky. Quote, I noticed with surprise and confusion that the picture not only gripped me, but impressed itself ineradicably on my memory. Painting took on a fairy tale power and splendor. End quote. He had an otherworldly feeling, I think is one way of putting it. Took him from the, the world of the mundane into I this mean, imaginary. He has a life. law career. Like, sorry, like that sounds really boring to so me. So he's a 30 year old law law guy what is he yeah i think he's a professor at this point he's in law he went to school to study like law and economics like all the boring stuff that will make you money yeah well (laughs) you know if i was in law a haystack might really get me to get you going get get my feelings going you know what i mean so you know what else gave him feelings i'm a little scared to ask music come on come on now all right duh duh um music actually for Kandinsky could also bring out that um, that sort of emotional response. That haystack feeling? The haystack <laughs> the haystack feeling. Yes. The haystacks, the music, the feelings, that was all enough to inspire him to actually quit his career in law and become an artist. Well, he sounds like he is too emotional to be studying law in the first place. From what I understand, lawyers are not the most warm-hearted folks around. Sorry to all our lawyer listeners. Hey, I'm sure there are exceptions to the rules. Of course there are. What about those badass immigration lawyers or those pro bono yeah, lawyers doing all the like, hard work slinging the law? They, I mean, I'm good. sure they have a good a good feeling at that. I'm sure they got that that their equivalent of the haystack feeling, but uh, they got to be like <laughs> cunning and cold, and and uh, they got to be like a terminator on the court, right? But they could be on good guys. You gotta, you gotta, that's gotta do. Someone's gotta do it. All right, sorry, I rescind my um, rescind it rescind it you know what i'm not gonna rescind it all right well, lawyers get ready come for at all me. the hate mail. come at me lawyers yeah. um come at I'll us i'll take at you all on art slice art slice pot at gmail you hear me lawyers you bring anything anything against me I'll, i'm here i'm here for it baby back to k he quits law he decides to become an artist and so he goes to art school and uh, he struggles to find his voice, and eventually he connects his love of music with compositions that music creates to allow him to be more abstract with his work. So at this point in time, he's not an abstract artist. No, he's he is creating not. 
more representational work. So work that has um, subjects and compositions that we can recognize. Using houses, the word trees. composition, yeah. he starts to think of composition as a music composition. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a good point. Thank and you. that allows him to be more free, more open, more abstract. Is that what you're saying? Yes. That's brilliant. Precisely. Thank you. This this little combo brings him back to that loving feeling, but now it's like... That haystack he's a, feeling. That haystack... Um, did I say loving feeling? <laughs> That song is going to be in my head for like weeks now. (sighs) All right. You ask what a sensitive man is doing in the law career. If it pleases the court, I said those things. I'll admit it. I don't know what to say. Order. I don't have a gavel. Real talk. I really don't know what he was doing in law because he actually seemed to have been inspired by color his whole life. Like even as a child, he recalled being stimulated by color. And this is probably because um, he had synesthesia. So he developed synesthesia as a child. Like they say that you get synesthesia early on. And he's growing Maybe. up in colorful Russia. Like if he's in Moscow, he's around the Red Square. Yes. So, uh, yeah. So he was inspired by the interiors of churches. Um, they were decorated with, with shimmering colors. So he probably felt that he was like moving into a painting. He's come up with a formula to try and find his his voice uh, within his his art. He's got music. He's got color. He's got emotions. And after a while, he starts to to paint abstractly. So Kandinsky, he is painting representational works. He starts listening to music, if I understand correctly. He equates musical compositions to paintings, and he decides to create a new type of painting, sort of. I mean, of course, there's design and shit and everything. He, he was influenced by things. Mm-hmm. And that became known as abstract art. Um, so listeners, like in the most basic explanation of for abstraction, think of when you look at something as it actually is, and then you take away certain aspects of it so it starts to look less like the object. And you can keep taking away or adding until it doesn't look like the original object anymore. But by abstracting it, you still keep its essence. He j- he kind of jumped off the uh, the diving board into the the weird abstract pool that doesn't look like a pool anymore. <laughs> he yeah. was the first. He's the one in line, and everyone, all the kids are like, "You do it, you do it, you do it, Wasili," and he does it. And he as he's jumping. Uh, the pool starts to fragment and turn into all these weird shapes. You know, I was thinking, I'm, who am I thinking of? That British guy who moved to LA. The hell is his name? He would do paintings of pools. Pools. David Hockney. In LA. Yeah, Hockney. Thank Hockney. you. Hockney. I didn't know he was British, mate. He's one. He's one of my kindred spirits, isn't he? Though? You didn't know he was British. No. British. <laughs> well, come to think of it, he does look like a bit like my old uh, uncle. You have Fair a British weather. uncle. Okay. This is his name, isn't it? No, love, Sorry, isn't listeners. It? I did not mean to provoke Don't worry. Me. I'm going to cut this out, ain't I? <laughs> Don't worry. I would oh, not. No. Oh, what was <laughs> I saying, love? Oh, God. No. No. There are degrees of abstraction. So if you think of like even cartooning or comic books, typically what we do mm-hmm. is we give them human features. But if you think of, like, Mickey Mouse, and come at me, Disney lawyers, I'm here for it. 
Um, Mickey still has a lot of human characteristics, right? Yes. He doesn't look like a mouse. He doesn't look like a human. He's somewhere in between. That is like one step into abstraction because we're taking a human characteristic, something that we would recognize if I'm looking at your face and you're frowning at me from this the long-winded description I'm giving. I can make Mickey frown a little bit and you'll still have that emotional response to a frown mm. or a smile or something. But it's just a little bit abstracted. Just a little bit. That's like dipping your toe in the abstracted pool. Okay. All right. Thanks for sharing that insightful example. You need another one? Of abstraction. Do I need another one? Do you need one? another example of abstraction? Did I confuse the listeners? Possibly. Do you have another one up your abstract sleeve? Oh, my sleeve's normal, baby. Look at this. Well sure? fitting. It's a good fitting sleeve. Okay. Your fancy Fits new hoodie. Fits me perfectly. Okay, great. Uh, okay. Let's say you have a bag of oranges and you turn those oranges into an orange juice with your juicer that you so happen to have that you bought one year because you wanted to go on like a health kick, but you never use anymore, but you still kind of <laughs> keep it around because it does bring you joy and it doesn't have like too much pulp. The juice it has a little bit of pulp, just the right amount of pulp. So you take it, you take that juice, you put it in a Ziploc bag put that Ziploc bag in the freezer for several months. You forget okay. about it. Things are in front of it. You've forgotten about it. It's all freezer burnt. It's like 2023 at this point, right? Sat in there for a while. You decide to souffle it. So you put the bag in water. You souffle the water. I don't know what it does to orange juice. It does something to orange juice, right? I don't even know what souffle um, is. Then you put it in a blender Right? Because you've moved on. You've you have moved a on. blender. You realize that a juicer only really takes the sugar out of the juice. It doesn't actually bring in all the nutrients, like the fibrous materials, everything that your body likes, right? So then you put it in a blender and you put a little tapioca starch in there. You get a real thick, creamy, frozen sort of fluffy Goodness. thing. And you just throw it outside on the ground. You take a picture of it. Is that an abstraction? Oh my God. I did not. I didn't see that coming. And then it haunts you and then the oranges haunt you. Because they're ghost oranges and they've been defrosted. That's terrifying. I will never look at my frozen food the same way again. Mm? They're friendly though. Okay. Friendly orange ghosts. Yes. All right. Well, thank you for that. That second insightful example. I can come up with more if that, do you think that I confuse the listeners more? No. Let me try and clarify. I think we'd, we'd all like to move on. Kandinsky has become an artist and he's doing well. He's successful. So he becomes an art professor. And then he writes a book called On the Spiritual and Art. He writes a couple of books. But this one was essentially like a manifesto detailing his theories about color and spiritualism. So he's also interested in that. So he's a... He had another component yeah. to, the, to the formula. You can say yeah. it. He's a budding cult leader. I didn't say that. And that's, that's okay. Well, that's why I'm here. He also starts two art groups, most notably one called... Der Blau Reiter, which it means the blue writer in English. And this one later inspired um, other art movements. So Kandinsky is huge to the art world as we know He's it today. A, yes. Concerning the spiritual and art, I made my students read and I read at one as point. An art student. Yeah. Yeah. I'm ashamed to say that I have not read on the spiritual and art yet. I know it's a short book. I know I could probably knock it out. That's on my list of things to do. Um, so he's a successful artist and professor, and he lands a job at the Bauhaus, which is a school of art, design, and architecture, and typography in Germany. Well-known school. For the band. He lands a job at the Bauhaus. I don't think I said band. 
Yeah, not the 80s goth band. No, I've not heard of them. Okay. I feel like I'm missing out. I haven't read On the Spiritual Art. I have not heard of okay, the no, no, band. The, is it spelled B-O-W-H? That's the Bow Wow House. You're thinking of that band. Okay. B-O-W-W-O-W-H-A-U-S. Gotcha. The Bow Wow House. Oh, God. Um... No, the Bauhaus was not an 80s goth band. I mean, it was, but the one we're talking about was a school of art design, architecture, and typography in Germany. The school was primarily known for its architecture and design, and it was considered and is considered the most influential art school of the 20th century. Um, and, and it's still what most art schools are based on today. We'll have to do an episode on on the Bauhaus. So it was around this time that Kandinsky began to take inspiration from zoology and biomorphic shapes and animals and those kinds of natural wonders. He liked to keep magazine clippings in his office. What a nerd. It's kind of dorky. Nerdy. So Kandinsky's living his dream life, dream career at the Bauhaus, but unfortunately it closed when the Nazis took over Germany in 1933. Like all good things... Comes to an end. Someone's got to fuck it up. Show up. His work was con- was confiscated by the Nazis, but he had to flee. He was forced to flee to France. Had to leave his job, leave his stuff, leave his clippings of biomorphic magazine clippings. Yeah, precious. Yeah, I don't know. Kind of a bummer. But he escapes from Germany, and then towards the end of his career, his paintings get more defined and more detailed. So think less abstraction and less fields of color and more defined shapes and compositions his older work the abstract work that you're probably most familiar with it's a lot of lines and triangles and shapes all pretty flat um Mm -hmm. usually there's just two modes of surface there is the more illusionary sort of background which tends to be a little bit more painterly in some areas just a little bit more painterly and then there's like this interplay with geometric shapes let's explain to the listeners what painterly is so painterly might mean that you are using your brush strokes more like you're leaning into the brush leaning in you're not trying to make it look like you're not using a paintbrush right you're not using the paintbrush as you would a pencil you're okay with the like fibers of the the brush showing you're getting lost in how the brush responds to the canvas oh it's beautiful you got a little haystack feeling going if you know what i mean no i don't because you're using it you're misusing it no i think i'm using it correctly to each their own haystack Okay. Think less abstraction and less fields of color and more defined shapes and compositions, much like those biomorphic shapes that he was interested in. So those biomorphic shapes are really coming into play now. Correcto. Those inspiration null clippings. <laughs> yeah. Kind of a vision board. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit more of work that's being made today where there's a bit more of a reference to things that you might see in life, but it's still abstract. So, you know, we talked about how you could be a little bit abstracted versus totally abstract. Well, here there's like an interplay between the little bit abstracted and the totally abstract. Is that fair to say? Yes, but I'm going to stop you right there so we can describe it 
listeners, if you haven't had a chance to already, please check out the painting and other images at our Instagram at ArtSlicePod. For every episode, we will be doing a narrative, which is a written account of the art that we we see in a in a in a more of a storytelling like manner. Is that right? Yes, we want to make sure if you're driving your car that you're not pulling out your phone in front of your face and getting in an accident. For this abstract composition, imagine that you are witnessing the workings inside your own body, all displayed to you on a computer screen. Your cells, organs, and microorganisms spend their days, much like we would, working, chatting with coworkers, building infrastructures, celebrating achievements, having casual Fridays, resting, focusing. Some days are more overcast, others are bright and sunny. Your vitamin D intake grows and shrinks with the seasons. You watch this rhythm play out as a time lapse. And if you pause the motion at any moment, what you have is a fragmentary, joyous, lifelike screenshot with shapes both familiar and unfamiliar. We are looking at an abstract composition. Spoiler alert. We got a bunch of different size shapes all kind of dancing together, wouldn't you say? Yes, they are of different colors and different opacities. Opacities for those of you who may not have the art lingo. You could probably guess what it is if you think of a spectrum from totally clear to totally solid. Opacities are kind of what, what that spectrum is. If you think of a window that you can see through versus a window with a frosted glass on it, you can kind of just see the little bit of what's underneath, like the world outside, all the way up to like a wall that you can't see through at all. That is opacity. Opacity. So that means that the paint in some areas is thinner than in others. Some... So I heard that he was using sand in, to give it a bit of a texture, right? He was doing areas. that around this time. So he was um, mixing sand in with his oil paint to give it like a... Uh, more tactile texture. Yes. Tactile texture. I cannot remember if he did with this piece. Yeah, I was too... We were too drunk. I saw a blurry little outline of it that was beautiful and kind of hazy like a haystack. So yes, thank you. There's different textures. I don't remember sand being in this one, but it, it wouldn't be uncommon during this time. Some of the colors overlap and that creates other colors and shapes. So he's doing two things here. He's planning out the composition so it looks like there are things that are overlapping but that's a compositional device that he's using and he's plotting these out very carefully but in some areas it does overlap there is that sort of opacity that we're talking about in a way he's a composer and or conductor Ooh, he's standing there in front of the orchestra waving his baton do you <laughs> think kandinsky painted like a conductor maestro is that what they're called maestro conductor yeah maestro no, of course not, because this paintings wouldn't look anything like this. You had to really plot these out. That makes sense to me, though, because when you're listening to music, obviously there's a lot of layers and a lot of instruments. The sound the instruments are making, the music overlaps with other instruments. When you harmonize, that would create a different color, different textures and whatnot. So I would say that this is a festive and animated composition. All that being said, 
But it's also very, like, while it feels like it's moving and it's oscillating on you and almost floating on you, um, you can see the time and effort Kandinsky took to really nail in a particular composition. This is not what we would call painterly. There's some painterly stuff going on in the background, but overall it's very, it's almost like they, they feel like they're cut out shapes in a way. I say it's festive because there's quite the complicated color palette. Different colors vary by shade and saturation. We have some bright and playful like pinks and purples and then some that are not so much festive like some so good tones. old earth tones. Yeah. Your browns, your greens, your reds. Dirty browns. Your dirty reds. Dirty reds. <laughs> there are all kinds of shapes. Some organic, some not. I have names for some of them, but for the ones I don't, I will try to describe them as best as you I can. names for these shapes. I have names. Okay. I named them. All right. Square. So like we said, there's there's all kinds of shapes, but I'm going to talk about the larger ones because there's a lot. I think what we tend to do with abstract work is that we try to look for something we can recognize. And from there, we read the rest of the painting in this in this case. Um, so I'm going to start with this little staircase I see in the bottom right corner. It's the most prevalent piece in the painting that looks like something that you would see in real life like it legit looks like a staircase and it gets even better because it looks like there's a little like triangle party banner draped across one of the (laughs) the stairs it kind of starts to look cartoony because like the shadows are like purple and blue but the stairs are white you know what it reminds me of is early 90s animations like ren and stimpy which was based on like hanna-barbera which they would do like a stuff that was partially like the background was painted like the Jetsons. Yeah. The background was always painted and didn't have a defined black outline, but the Mm. animated figures had a defined black outline. Interesting. It's all coming together. That being said above this staircase is a like pink mutated jelly bean shape. It's got a little that texture going on. Doesn't look like a jelly bean to me. I said a mutated jelly bean. Okay. Think of like five jelly bellies. It looks like an organ or a sausage. Gross. A pimply, Gross. pimply sausage. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. That is, I mean, gross. So over to the left of the jelly bean shape, there is a another long shape, like a wavy rectangle with several different colors and several different shapes inside. Looks like a long flag being, wo- uh, being waved, waved <laughs> in the, uh, in this like festival. Waving in the wind. It could be a lot of things. It's really beautiful. <laughs> it's like flying through the composition. Yeah, it is beautiful. There's a contrast of this primary green with this primary red that normally I wouldn't like, but the way that he's surrounded it with white and all these pastel sort of colors makes it seem like that is the most saturated paint. That's funny that you mentioned that because I think alone those two colors would have been like Christmas, but there's all these other colors that make me think it's a party, not a Christmas party before that. I think the shape is probably the dominant curve, like the one mentioned in the title. I think so. It's the biggest dominant curve there is. Exactly. So just below this dominant curve, we have two thin elongated shapes. Think about when you were a kid and you cut up construction paper. There were all these thin cut up shapes 
that you couldn't do anything with. Like, so you're done snipping your, your, your th- hand turkey. <laughs> yes, your hand turkey. And then you're left with all these little scraps and you don't know the what to do with them. little pieces between the fingers of the hand turkey. Yes. Yes. You are on point. Yeah. You are on point. Yes. So those, that's what that looks like. I don't know what kind of shape you would call that, but just think about a cluster of those or a pair of very defined eyebrows. If we move up from the eyebrows to the middle left corner, there is a large yellow circle and on top of it there are some sharp looking shapes these look more like spider legs and they look more intimidating this reminds me of um paint you know microsoft that that paint program ms paint this reminds me of ms paint you know what i'm talking about right yeah oh you had a computer right yeah okay great one of the first ever made because i'm old Okay. All right. Um. So you would get the cut tool and you would like zigzag it all around and you would get the fill bucket and and then you would only fill in like the open parts. And then the parts that don't fill up were like diamond shapes. They kind of left these like sharp sort of diamond looking shapes. Yep. Diamond. 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 Diamonds in the rough. Diamonds in the paint. So Steph, does this make you think of music or like a spiritual presence for lack of a better term, like God? I mean, he was so into like music and that spiritual feeling that he got from looking at art or music or listening to music. Uh, Does that give you any of that feeling? No, not exactly. Uh, I think spirituality probably means something different to everybody. Uh, For me, though, I think this just reminds me of better times i think i have like sen- like a sentimentality attached you have to that it. florence nostalgia attached to it yes oh a different time entirely uh it just seems like so long ago i think this i think the colors and the fact that these shapes like emanate movement i think is energizing in a way like i don't feel like it's stagnant i look at it and i feel like i'm looking at I don't know. I feel like I'm looking you know at the I mean? Olympics or something, right? It's kind of athletic in something a way. Something that is moving. I don't like I want I want to say the antonyms which is it's not static. It's not a lava lamp like <laughs> You know what I mean? No, like, but what it is, is the word? at the same time what's so great about it is it it is kind of static at the same time, right? It's like he is painfully rendering the shapes that you would see in a lava lamp which are fleeting. So it's kind of like he's taking this snapshot of these very fleeting moments. It's very beautiful in that regard. And all that being said, like it's the feeling though. It's that the haystack. Feeling, it's that haystack it's the feeling. haystack feeling. I get a haystack feeling from it. Absolutely. See with the Monet haystacks, I get the feeling from that, right? The mm-hmm. sort of ethereal feeling that Monet either purposefully did or just happened to kind of stumble across. Whereas I feel like with Kandinsky, he's taking that ethereal feeling and he's jotting it down on paper. He's almost like illustrating it for us. Like he's throwing it under a microscope and yeah, blowing it up. Exactly. Yeah. Like, and he's he's recording it. He's writing it down. He's very like, scientific he's, about it's, it. It's a very scientific yeah. piece. I would say that his other work is incredibly scientific. It's almost a little bit rigid and boring for me, for my tastes. But this piece has more life to it. It has this sort of sentimentality to it and i don't think it's just because we saw it together in florence like we were mentioning at the top of the show you know it's funny i wanted to say what i said about this piece the last time 
but it totally like the whole painting changed on me it's, it looks different now I, I like it but in a different way I agree. I don't know why, but I felt like I saw much more green the last time I looked at right? it. Like, and now I see, I see more of the pinks and purples. Yeah, like, I don't know what it exactly. is. Exactly. I was getting like painting. a a cheery, sunny day, and now I'm getting like a, I don't know, it's like a warm, like cake at a party. Yeah, cake, <laughs> cake at a dance party. Frosty, a kid's frosty dance party. cake. Exactly. I like frosty that. Cake. No, total. I mean, I can see that, but the. I think the thing is you can see a lot of things in this and that's kind right. of the beauty of abstraction. You can make of it what you will. It may not be the original intention of yeah. the painter, but it's the haystack feeling. It's what you, what yeah. you make of it. I have to imagine that he was in a good place when he painted this. And by a good place, I mean, maybe he was feeling Zen. He was feeling peaceful and I'm speculating. I have no idea, but I have to imagine he is because only three years ago, uh, before painting this, he he fled Germany, he fled his right. home, he left his dream job uh, to move to France. I mean, which is France. France is not a bad place to be. Don't get me wrong, but his it's life still was a up, scary time. His life was uprooted, turned upside down, and it looks like he found some peace and some happiness. And not that this compares exactly, but I mean, we are in the middle of a worldwide pandemic, and. There is no end in sight, but it's important to stay to stay positive because it's not going to last forever, you know, and life is too short to dwindle on the things that we can't control. You said dwindle. Do you mean dwell? Mm, I don't. Maybe. Sure. I got my point across. Okay. That's what's important. It feels very alive, but at the same time, it feels like it's also looking back, you know? This is taking on a new meaning. Yeah, for us, as we're looking at it again years later. So it just gets richer. But there are works, though, you can revisit and mm-hmm. you will see something different or you feel something different because you too are changing as Absolutely. a person. Yeah. So you like this piece? I do. I do too. Could you tell? <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah. I mean, it's a great, it's a fantastic piece. Yeah. All the nostalgia and sentimentality aside, it, it is a fantastic piece. In fact, in, instead of listening to us, you should probably just be looking at it. Yeah. Shut us up. Shut us up and go to our Instagram at ArtSlicePod. Listeners, for your art assignment this week, I want you to pick a piece of instrumental music and make an abstract piece of art from that. Do you know what? I don't think it necessarily has to be instrumental. I think there can totally be like vocals. Oh, so you're okay. In there. Yeah. Um, but the point is to focus on the sounds, right? And the layers. The so like, harmonies. And the harmonies. Yeah, well, it's part of the layers. Yeah, like I've been like super duper obsessed with this dance pop album and the beat has its own own shape for me. So the beat could be a shape. The sh- yeah, the beat is a shape. Um, her vocals are like wavy little lines to me, right? That could be a shape or a color. That can be a shape or a color, right? And they can overlap just like Kandinsky's shapes and colors think about how compositions weave in music and and sort of do that visually it's with any material you have it doesn't matter it doesn't have to be painting it can be a pen and paper clips or paper clips post-it notes tape office supplies office supplies whatever you got yeah your cat steal your office supplies rearrange your cat into an abstract composition based on a musical composition that you appreciate you could just rearrange their fur and take a picture real quick no no I want you to physically rearrange the bone and muscle structure of your favorite cat into an abstract composition based on a song by, I don't know. 
Hey, listeners, don't forget to follow us at Art Slice Pod. On, on, every, on everything. Everything. On everything on that you toast, can think of. On your Insta. On your dot coms. On your twi- Twitter. If you really like this episode, which means you probably did if you're still listening to this, please rate and review us after you follow us. And no, your kid could not have painted that. Your kid couldn't have painted this. This is for sure. Maybe... No, you, you couldn't have. No. Okay. Bye. Bye.